In this episode of The Cole Memo, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Bob Miller. Dr. Miller works at a cannabis testing lab that is licensed in the state of Illinois and I believe has operations across the United States, but we'll get into that. This is The Cole Memo. I am your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the audio, video, or transcript version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you'll find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode in the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can use the search functionality to find the corresponding episode, and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, and transcript version of the episode. The new search functionality that I rolled out is in the top right-hand corner of thecolememo.com. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode so that you might be able to do your own research. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. It's a great way to support our show, but another way to support our show is at thecolememo.com slash support. You can make a one-time monthly or yearly contribution of your choice. That's right. If you have a few dollars to throw my way, you can do that at thecolememo.com slash support. But one of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode. Give it a thumbs up, leave a comment, or post a review. Your engagement and support is appreciated. Enjoy this episode of The Cole Memo. Today is February 21st, 2024. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Bob Miller onto the show. We'll be talking about a lot of different topics today, but before we do that, Dr. Miller, do you mind introducing yourself to my audience? Sure. Yeah. Bob Miller. Um, I'm the chief scientific officer for ACT Laboratories. Uh, been with ACT for about four and a half years. I have about 35 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, heads of quality at multiple companies, in, including Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and most recently Gilead. At the time at ACK Laboratory, came in as the COO of ACT, uh, then became co-CEO, and now I'm focusing on the science as, as the lead of the CSO. Awesome. And I'm so excited to talk about some of the science behind cannabis testing today. Um, and, and there, I just kind of broke what you do. Uh, do you want to tell us you're in Illinois and multiple states, but it's cannabis testing, right? That's correct. So uh, we are in six states. We're in Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, and Florida in Michigan. I'd say 95% of the work we do is in cannabis. We do also do some hemp testing, but our, our claim to fame is cannabis testing, correct? Awesome. Awesome. And I'm just curious, before we get into the body of today's subject, can you tell our listeners, how does testing even work? Yeah, sure. So we, we take, uh, you know, we take our role very, very important. As I say, we're actually the, the group that ensures the quality and safety of the product before it goes to the consumer. So in all the states that we do business, um, any product that is marketed to the consumer needs to be tested an independent laboratory before it can be sold to the public. 
Awesome. Yeah. And I guess just to put a finer point on it, one thing that I misunderstood, uh, but had my uh, understanding corrected on was like this joint I have in this little bottle here, for example, it's not tested itself, right? It, it's that uh, a batch that was representative or a sample that was representative of the batch was tested. Is that correct? That's correct. So every state, uh, each of them have separate requirements. But with that being said, what is done is defined as when you have, as you can imagine, say a batch is, you know, 5,000 joints. Um, what is done is there has to be a sampling of that, a randomized sampling of that material. And the number of samples that we actually do bring in is really defined by the state. And then we bring that material in and it's tested for a series a series of things. I always like to think of it as there's really two different types of testing that we do. There's the potency test, uh, which is the one that the consumers obviously see that states the level of THC. And then there's a whole series of contaminant or potential contaminant tests that are also done as part of that process. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's very interesting. And I'm just curious. Uh, so it would be like, I'm a grower, I'm a licensed grower, and my batch is ready, but I need to get it tested before I put it on the shelves, right? So I call the folks at ActLab, ActLab.com, by the way, for anybody that's interested. And then you come and gather the samples, or, or do I gather? How does that part of it work? Yeah. So what happens is, as you might imagine, there's a pretty tight control of how much material is removed and then transported to our facility. So that grow processor will call us and say, I'm ready to have my product tested. They fill up some necessary paperwork. Um, we then go in and take the sample um, using, again, some predefined um, procedures to get a, a, a sample that's representative of the batch. And then that material is brought back to our lab and tested. Um, what we have to do is it, we're very particular on how much material we take from the grower processor, and then ultimately how much do we test, and then how much do we ultimately destroy. So that there's a very tight control there. It is also put into what we call the seed-to-sale system. So the seed-to-sale system is the tracking system, which would then allow um, the state to be able to get a feel for what's being tested, who is it for, and what are the results. And then that also creates what we call a certificate of analysis. And a certificate of analysis is really a summary of all the results that we did to test for that specific problem. Very cool. Very cool. So not only the potency testing, but like you say, the um, what was the other part of the test? It contaminant testing. Cont so yeah. So what you know did put a little bit greater detail for the state of Illinois. Um, we do microbiological testing. Um, there's a, a number of different uh, species that we're testing for. We do mycotoxin testing. Mycotoxin is a toxin that can be uh, that can be um, released from uh, specific types of mold. So we do mycotoxin testing. We do heavy metals testing, uh, which is a series of different uh, metals that could be inherent in the process. Uh, then we do residual solvents. And again, depending on how that flower is further processed, oftentimes there'll be solvents to extract the cannabis. So there is a test for residual solvents, and then there's pesticides. Those are the series of tests that are required in the state of Illinois. Gotcha. 
And maybe that leads us up to the video, uh, the testimony that I saw that, and maybe that can crack us open to discussion. Uh, does that sound like a good transition to you? Sure, that's fine. Cool. All right, I'm going to just play the short video so that people know what we're talking about, and then I'll give you the opportunity to like elaborate if that sounds good. So that'd be great. Call for its overall success. I want to talk about one aspect. I, I apologize. I hopefully, won't be too in depth in chemistry, but a situation right now we're living in Illinois. In Illinois today, we have a pesticide test that we cannot do. The test requires us to test for 350 different pesticides. If we were to even get the materials of known purity, it would cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars even to be able to do that. But what it makes it worse is it says the specification should be the tightest specification of any product that would have that pesticide. So, for example, we're having arguments right now, having a pesticide, and we're using a specification of what's in sheep. Because the way the regulation is written, you have to test for 350, and the criteria you have to use is the tightest of all specs for all types of foodstuffs. So the absurdity of that situation is just paramount. What's the driving? Noncompliance. No, since none of us can actually do the test, every laboratory is doing something different. Many of them are not even doing the test. So with the intention of creating the most stringent criteria actually caused the opposite. It actually is causing noncompliance. So really important about regulations. All right. Now, um, that sounded like, like I said, it sounded very much related to what we were just talking about. You mentioned the pesticide test. Tell us a little bit more, more about this topic. This is the first time I've ever heard of it. Yeah. So maybe just give you a little pretext of what that, that little sign, uh, the, uh, the video that you just played, um, I was testifying in the state of Pennsylvania uh, as they're considering adult use legislation. And they asked me to speak about what makes up a good program um, and how can they learn from experiences in other states. And I was using just that situation to really bring bring back to the table that it's really, really important that when creating legislation and specifications that there's conversations going on between the regulators and the laboratories. And that was just one of the examples I used. So I just want to put that into context. Yeah. So um, it, within the state of Illinois, um, it is, um, as you might imagine, because there's no federal requirements, every state essentially defines their own specifications. And what what the state of Illinois has done related to pesticides is it really essentially says that, and I can actually read it, uh, but what the leg what the requirement says is that a cannabis sample should be deemed to have passed it if it satisfies the most stringent acceptable standard for pesticide chemical residue in any food item as defined in CFR, blah, 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 blah. So what that really does is I was kind of, I said 350, it's actually in excess of 350. I started to count them this morning and kind of gave up but it's in excess of 350. But what, what it says is, you, here's are all the, the different pesticides that cannot be present or cannot be present at a certain level. And it could list of, of many, many different pesticides. And then it says, if you find any of those pesticides, you have to apply the most stringent criteria of foodstuffs. So as I was mentioning, what that really does, it's really a test. And, and I should also mention in the state, um, is also put in as a statute. So it's really hard to change the, the regulation. 
So what does it cause is because it cannot be achieved, um, it really has caused laboratories to interpret in very, very different ways and in very inconsistent fashion. The great news right now um, is uh, there has been a new head of compliance in the state, and we're actually talking about literally as we speak. So there is that acknowledgement at the state level. Uh, this is, needs to be changed. So I, I'm really, really optimistic that over time we'll be able to make changes that are necessary to get a, a, a more realistic and relevant criteria for pesticides. Gotcha. Do you think that consumers have anything to worry about? No, I don't. Because what, you know, if you go across all the other states that we do business, some states have done a really nice job of looking at what are the, what pesticides should we be looking at and what's a realistic spec? And we're seeing more and more states that actually do it based on safety data, where they'll establish the criteria based on known safety data. So um, I think in general, the, the public at this point should not be concerned, provided that testing is being done um, with a reasonable level of uh, specificity. So I think as we get uh, more realistic specifications and ensure all labs are doing it the same way, we'll be in a very, we'll be in a much better place than we are today. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, anything else with regard to the pesticide subject uh, itself and how it relates to testing? No, I don't think so. I think, again, um, I'm hopeful with with the new, the new individuals on the, on the, in the program that we're going to look to other states and how they've done it because some states have done it well and some states have not done it so well. So hopefully, you know, looking at to say, how do we make it, let's test for the right pesticides, i.e. that could be present in um, cannabis. Let's make sure that we have methodologies that allow for the detection of those pesticides. And let's ensure that all laboratories are doing it in, in, in a consistent fashion. Um, and, and establishing realistic specifications. When you have all those pieces and parts in play, then we'll have a much more robust program than what we have today. Gotcha. Now, switching gears a little bit, you mentioned microbiological contaminants and testing with that. Um, I'm curious, like, I, like we spoke about before we went on air, I've talked to several licensed operators that they themselves feel the... Uh, regulations are too strict. And of course, you could maybe consider that anecdotal uh, because they were just, you know, a few operators that I spoke to. But on the other side of that, as a consumer, as I think I also mentioned to you, the weed is just like so dry. It has to be so dry in order to comply with the regulations. And this is what the uh, operators told me. They said, Cole, we'd love to sell you fresh weed. Like we know how to dry and cure weed to an enjoyable uh you know level but that level is is not compatible for lack of better words with the state regulations in other words you you kind of have to as they claim over dry uh your product have you heard similar feelings do you feel that maybe we went a little too strict with these regulations uh yeah uh, yes yes and yes um, so again, comparing and contrasting specifications in, in the state of Illinois versus others in general, uh, the microbiological specifications for those that are quantitative, the one meaning that you get a number for 
they're about one-tenth the specification for other states in which we do business. So as I tell people, when you think about microbiological contamination, you really need um, really two or three things to get microbial growth. You obviously need microbes. You need the bugs. Uh, you need moisture. And you need is a closed environment. And when you think about weed that's being sold in a package, you have all three. So you will have some level of microbial presence. What you're making reference to is because the specifications are so tight in Illinois, if you remove the water or, or treat it in other fashions, there are things to sort of remediate weed. But in any case, if you remove the water, you will minimize the amount of microbial growth. So what you're seeing is you're seeing the drying of the product to a much lower level of moisture to be able to meet the specification of the microbials, but now have an impact on the the actual uh, quality of the material in that it has to be so dry. Right. Right. And I actually, I don't remember a few years ago, the Chicago Sun-Times even did a story on this. And to your point, uh, I just found the part where they pointed out in Illinois, microbiological contaminants such as mold, yeast, and various bacteria are measured in colony forming units per gram or CFUG with labs culturing them on testing plates to count them. For yeast and mold, Illinois allows up to 1,000 CFUG colony, form colony forming units per gram, but Michigan allows yeast and mold up to 100,000. So like you said, I think you were right on the dot, one-tenth. Yep. I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, that that's in general. That's it, it is about one tenth. And and what we see is with multi-state operators that may be doing business in other states, they really have to modify their their weed to be able to meet the criteria. And right. they kind of know um the you know the consumer experience is impacted, but that has to be done to be able to meet the specification. Absolutely. Right. And then, you know, to to your point, you kind of brought it up earlier. Um it, it, it kind of, this is what this all leads to. The operators have told me, and this is like several operators, not just a few, uh, that they have to employ what they're now calling kill steps. They don't call it remediation anymore. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. It seems like remediation would be the idea. If you fail the test, then you would remediate your right. product. And I want to talk to you about that, but really quick. I just wanted to ask if you've heard the same that most operators feel they have to employ kill steps before they even send it to testing so that they can almost ensure that it passes test passes testing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in, in clarification, remediation is really post failure. What can you do? So your, your comment is correct. But um, there are a number of different types of things you could do as a kill step. Um, there's ozone treatment, there's UV treatment, UV light. There's even uh, some things alleged, uh, so supposedly that will work where you add a, a cold or a cryopreservation step, but all those are intended to uh, reduce that microbial burden that I was referring to, um, and that can work quite effectively. What we're being told about that um, is taken to the extreme You'll start to see discoloration of the weed. You definitely will start to see uh, reductions in THC levels uh, in the product. And something we didn't talk about, which is terpenes. Terpenes is, a, is another test that we do 
which um, is not required, but many many of our uh, customers are asking for. Terpenes is another uh, material that's inherent in cannabis that has some its own pharma. I'll call it pharmacological effects, i.e., anti-anxiety, allegedly sleep, other things. But it also has synergistic effects with the cannabinoids. But that will also be impacted if it's treated with that kill step. So right. trying to meet the spec really starts to really have an uh, impact on the overall quality of the product that the consumer will see. Yeah, absolutely. And with all that said, I'd like to, first of all, establish the fact that, correct me if I'm wrong, remediation slash kill steps is not unique to the cannabis industry. In fact, these tools they're using are from other industries, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, they are. Cool. Yeah. And with that, I wanted to ask the same question I asked earlier. Do consumers have anything to worry about with regard to remediation? And the reason I ask that is because sometimes people hear like irradiation as a form of remediation and they think they're getting like nuclear weed or something. Um, yeah. Can you can you weigh in? Do, yeah, is there, there any reason to be concerned? There is no there's no indications whatsoever that that has any uh, uh, impact on the quality of the product from any kind of residual um no treatment material that's being done to do that kill step, that there's no evidence of that at all. They don't need to be concerned. Thank you. Thank you. And um, to, to something that we brought up earlier that I wanted to make sure we touched base on, as you said, remediation is, is uh, what did you say again? It's like a so, afterward yeah, so, step. Yeah. So uh, what will, what can occur is if, if after all those specific uh, actions we were just referring to, and yet the product still doesn't meet specification from a microbiological side, the material can be brought back and extracted to be able to be used for a different means. So that's what I'm really calling about remediation. Once the, once the uh, material has been treated and still doesn't meet the criteria, there's really no way to bring it back, but other than to extract it into, you know, with solvents. And it creates other other challenges, but nonetheless, you can extract the THC into organic solvents and then use it for other types of products. And that's oftentimes what people do if it doesn't meet that the necessary criteria. Gotcha. And yeah, that's what I was just about to ask about. So if I could put that in a bottle really quick, and please correct me if I get this wrong, but if a cannabis company sends a batch in for testing, folks, and it fails, they can remediate the sample and uh, extract the remediated product, but for use in an infused product, but it still must pass state testing. Did I get all that right? That's absolutely right. And and solvents will absolutely kill um, any of those microbes or essentially the microbiological contamination doesn't come with it because you're using solvents. So what it will do is effectively, I'll call it a kill, uh, but now you have um, uh, infused, uh, you have material which you then can infuse to other products like like a gummy or something like that. Edible yeah. product. Yeah. And similar to that, but not at all related to remediation to kind of shift gears. I guess before I do that, do you have any other thoughts on uh, kind of the, the old topic that we just discussed, remediation, kill steps, stuff like that before we move on? No, I don't think so. Cool. Um, so like I said, unrelated to that, but you just made me think of it because you talked about infusing, you know, an extract into infused goods. Uh, I've talked to the Illinois Hemp Growers Association way back in the day, and and I'm under the impression that for years now we've had a 
um, variants that allows cultivators to use hemp-derived cannabinoids in their infused products. In fact, I just re- uh, interviewed Marimed the other day, and they spoke about how they choose to primarily use um, hemp-derived cannabinoids within their state-legal uh, infused products. Um, do you see a lot of that as a cannabis testing lab, like using the hemp-derived cannabinoids in infused products? Uh- Not really. Uh, We have been involved in a number of states really looking at uh, what I call the illicit market. And uh, what that really relates to, as you know, you see things uh, like Delta 8 that is uh, available for sale in non-regulated locations like a gas station or so on. And um, when you, what the Farm Bill absolutely allows you to do is to take uh, hemp and its major component is CBD um, and be able to use that. What we have seen is um, some groups taking that material and then chemically modifying it to create Delta-8 and Delta-9. And what we have seen in those cases is if it's not done in an appropriate fashion, you start to get a lot of other things which are um, in some aspects, you know, hemp derived intoxicants. So we've seen yeah. uh, in situations like that, and I know there's definitely interest in many states about how to ensure the safety of those materials which are available and um, looking at potentially having to test them to verify that they have what they, you know, what, what they are is what's on the label. Yeah. And I want to get back to that topic because I know that you've spoke about that topic at length. I want to give you the floor to be able to talk about, you know, if it sounds like there is some room for concern on the subject of hemp, at least from your perspective. So, but I'm just curious again, uh, on the hemp derived cannabinoids in kind of a state regulated environment, I just find that fascinating, especially given what you just said and what we will be talking about. Um, the reason I find it so fascinating is because to me, it makes economic sense. You can source these materials low. And since Illinois has limitations on the market, you can almost sell them at a higher rate so i am just curious like do people that you work with like use hemp derived cannabinoids in their infused products like per the variance allows and the reason i'm asking is like i didn't know if it was like they would like even tell you because at the end of the day there is really no difference so like i didn't even know if they would tell you like hey by the way these chocolate bars have hemp in them hemp derived cannabinoids yeah we don't you're absolutely right on so we don't really hear about it um, and nor would there be any reason for them to share that with us. Yeah. Um, the only time that we would uh, see something like that is when we do testing, we've done testing of the same product over and over again. We do something called trend analysis where we continuously look to see how is the product performing. Mm. During that trend analysis, we saw something unusual in that we got some additional cannabinoids that we don't typically see. It, it's our practice to go back to them and say, hey, this product met specification, but boy, it looked different. It, it was something different. That would be the only time that we'd hear about, oh, we we changed sources or we looked at a different source. But it's not very common for a, a grow processor to, to to share that with us because we're there just to really see does it meet or not meet the specifications required by the state. Yeah. Thank you for uh, weighing in on that. Um, and I'd love to give you the floor now. Um, 
Delta A hemp. Uh, before we got on air, you talked about the fact that you've been kind of speaking about this subject and you think there is some room for concern. Uh, tell us about uh, hemp and, you know, Delta A, especially from like a scientific pers perspective. I'd love to hear uh, your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as again, as you know, the Farm Bill um, allowed on a federal level hemp to be uh, consumed, used. And the major component from a, a cannabinoid perspective is CBD. Um, so, definitely hemp, CBD, direct connection uh, and, and done pretty, I'll call it pretty safely. What people have started to realize is they then take that CBD and then chemically modify it. So by and they use some pretty there's a there's a number of ways to do it, but um, it tends to li potentially leave acids because you have to treat the CBD or other um, heavy metals because you may have to do some other kind of synthetic work to get to either delta eight or delta nine. And what we have seen, we did some work in Pennsylvania where we actually went on the uh, storefront and actually just went to some local stores and bought it. And it was labeled as Delta 8 product. And lo and behold, of those 21 samples that we tested at that time, only four of them actually contained what they said they were supposed to contain about the levels of Delta 8. All the others either had Delta 9 in them, some didn't have any Delta 8, and one that I always use as an example, and actually when I've testified, I use this example on a regular basis. Amazingly so, one material had, a, had one had one 1,200 milligrams of Delta-9 in it, which if somebody were obviously to take that, that would just have a profound effect. So the need of being able to really control the quality of the materials um, that are available like Delta-8 is really, really important. I have no doubt that there's some companies that are doing it the right way in that they get the conversion from CBD to Delta-8, really don't have many other things, but because it's such an uncontrolled environment, we have definitely seen other situations where either because of purposeful misleading of the public or not understanding the chemistry, what they've created is what I call this cannabis soup of many, many different uh, cannabis-containing materials, as well as things like heavy metals and acids that were just left over from their their chemical reactions, which which were not done in an appropriate fashion. Yeah, gotcha. And that's uh, thank you for boiling it down to that because I was about to ask you. People are surprised when I say this, but actually, the first time I tried Delta Eight, I've got a picture of the product, was in 2019 in an Illinois dispensary. This was a Delta-8 disposable. I'd never heard of it before. But I think to your point, please correct me if I'm wrong, you're not saying that Delta-8 is, or any cannabinoid really, is uh, that we have any room for concern uh, with regard to just consuming that compound or molecule, if you will. Your concern is the sourcing materials and how what might actually be in it, right? Yeah, I mean, Delta-8 is psychoactive like Delta-9, but that's a whole different conversation. But my 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 focus right now is saying, how do we ensure that that material that is being marketed as Delta-8 is truly what's on the labels in the bottle? And we, we've got enough uh, information, and we're going to be doing some additional work looking at other, uh, you know, purchasing other materials 
to see has it gotten any better to say, can can a consumer purchasing Delta really feel comfortable what they're getting is only Delta and it's at the levels which the label indicates it is. And yeah. right now, I'm not convinced that that's the case. So I'm curious, what do you think the solution is to that issue, at least from a testing labs perspective? Do you think it would be that if you're going to sell these products, they need to go through the same types of protocols that other intoxicating can- cannabis products go through? Absolutely. That That's the solve. That's the solve. Now it becomes, it's a much more complicated thing because as you probably know, you can get these things on Amazon, right? right. So, you know, being able to just go to, you know, requ- you know, a few things, requiring them, those materials not to be readily available, it should be behind the counter, right? That's one. And some states have done that. Uh, making sure that they don't have labeling which glorifies them that you don't even realize what you know particularly what our children are taking you know what what is this material right so i think being able to make it not as flashy advertising wise is another piece we should do and then the third one is to have similar types of standards to be able to say again what what is in the what is in the bottle is on the label yeah and i'm just curious like i recently heard similar calls i won't get too specific because it's in the realm of politics but i've heard you know people call for exactly the idea that you uh just described which is like hey let's just subject them all to testing so that we can at least make sure this stuff is safe right And, and i feel like that's agreeable uh very agreeable um but unfortunately it seems like some people that may have a vested interest kind of in the market have been like eh maybe maybe we don't allow them to sell their products and get tested. So it seems like what first started about a debate around public safety has now become a debate around whether or not, you know, more people should be licensed. I'm curious as a scientist and somebody who seemingly cares about the public's health, do you, what's your perspective on that issue? I mean, safety yeah. or? Yeah. And I've heard this because I, again, I testified in a number of states and it's a, it's a tough conversation, right? Because you, you have, I'm sure some really good hemp farmers that do a really nice job and yeah. their product is probably as as good as as any cannabis product right and I'm and and I I've, I've met some of those people in some of these these uh, testimonies but it's the same old story right you only get the people that get punished are all the people doing it the, the wrong way right and everybody gets punished as a result of it punished I'm putting that in quotes um but I always when I talk about this I really talk about it from the perspective of um not only you know I have a PhD in chemistry, but I'm also a pharmacist. Um, I can tell you, and I I always through all my my lifetime in the pharmaceutical industry, always ask myself, would I give this product to my child, to my parents, to whoever? And right now, I'd say unequivocally, Delta Eight, the way it is today, I would not, just because I can't ensure the safety of it. And that to me, and when you when you're a regulator, those are things that are obviously the the important part of this, right? How do I protect the public? So as much as it it has an impact on, I'll call it the good guys and girls that are doing it right. I get that. Um, you just have to say because of what's out there and the risks of those materials, there has to be greater control. Yeah. In other words, if I could please, please correct me on this if I'm wrong. I don't want to summarize your thoughts incorrectly. In other words, prohibition just isn't the answer. The answer really is regulation, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Yeah, that, you know, I, 
I hate to use a, a kind of a charged example, but I think it it relates here. Uh, some people will say you can't stop abortions. You can only stop safe abortions. And I think that that logic applies here. You can't stop the cell of these molecules or let's call them drugs. Uh, but you you can certainly stop the safe sale of them if you're not going to let people get regu- you know, regulated and subject them to the same standards. So. Yeah, yeah. Because again, when I when I'm in those tests, you hear uh, amazing stories on how these products have helped patients, and so I can't. I'm not denying any of that, right? It's just say let's do it in a safe manner. If indeed it has uh, um, a pharmacolo- well, it does have pharmacological relevance. Let's at least make sure that how it's being done is being done in a safe fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, any other thoughts? I'd like to wrap up with one last subject, uh, but any other thoughts on the the topic of hemp-derived cannabinoids? No, not really. Cool. Well, I feel like I saw um, you were talking about, uh, I, I didn't see this actually until this morning, um, that like the Pennsylvania hearing that you had also had like this paperwork that you provided and you talked about uh, current issues with lab testing, you know, like how consumers will buy based off of THC uh, percentage, which obviously, as you mentioned earlier, maybe they should take into account more things like terpenes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, I've heard of the flip side of that issue since co- consumers are looking for high THC levels that there have been allegations that laboratories have fall oh you've actually even included that in your um you said in some of the worst cases in other states laboratories have falsified or incentives have been created for companies to laboratory shop uh for results that yield desired results do you mind talking about that uh a little bit yeah sure so uh when you think about uh cannabis in general it's one of the few materials when you think about items that we consume whereby the higher the THC level, the more a, a grower processor can charge. And at least today, and, and hopefully over time that will change, people think the higher the better, right? Without ignoring the fact about, well, there's, as you were just saying, the entourage effect between terpenes and the experiences and so on and so forth. But with that being said, today, the higher THC, the more you can charge. What we have absolutely seen, and I've had personal um, uh, examples whereby unscrupulous laboratories, and I would say unscrupulous growth processors, are willing to pay for higher potency numbers, even if those numbers are not legitimate. Um, and I'll give just one example. We had, um, it was not in the state of Illinois, it was one of our other states. We were bringing on a new customer. His question to me was, well, what's your price for a potency test, and do you have two different prices? And I said, uh, no, we have one price. It's the potency test. And they said, you mean you don't give us an, an extra, you know, to get a higher number that I can pay extra money for? And this was recent. So wow, uh, it is happening, right? So, um, and to me, two things happen as a result of that. One is the consumer has an economic impact, right? They think they're buying 30% THC flour and it's 20% THC. That's one. Mm-hmm. And a second one, uh, and again, this was one a real life example where I, we were talking to a neurologist where he was saying I had, you know, I was giving cannabis to my patient and they were having seizures and sometimes they were having seizures and other times they weren't and I couldn't understand what was going on. 
And what we came to conclude was the material that they had gotten, they were diff- getting two different sources of material. And one of those materials didn't have the level of THC they thought they did. So here was a, an example where there was a safety issue whereby the, the neurologist felt that the patient should be under control. Yeah. Suggested them to get certain material, certain THC level, and found out the material, even though it was labeled that way, was not. And actually, they were seizing, and and it was it was a, a big ha ha moment for me too. But definitely, it's happening. Yeah. Um, and uh, we really need to really get that under better control because nobody wins in that situation. Um, and we really think I think it's just really important to again get you know what's in the bottles on the label. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, I don't mean to like poke a hole in the entire business model that you're operating in, but do you think, I'm just curious, some people will jokingly say, well, this stuff's not made in the same place that Tylenol's made. And what they mean by that, I think, is like, there's not like, when you take a Tylenol, you know, every Tylenol is like pretty well the same. And you've got history in the pharmaceutical industry. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess my question is, I'm curious, is it is it the idea that they're even able to shop around? Because like the whole term third party independent labs make it sound like you're just like randomly assigned a lab, or at least that's how I interpreted it when I first heard that phrasing. But as you yeah. say, you very much are in charge of who tests your product, which I believe can lead to issues. What are your like thoughts about like should there just be one body, you know, or well, I, I think, yeah, I don't think you can ever have one body to do testing. I think what we definitely push for, and we're definitely seeing that movement now, is to for state regulatory authorities to have their own laboratory. Not to mm. do testing of all the product, but to set standards and to be able to be that quote-unquote tiebreaker um, at the end of the day. And we've seen some states do it very very well where they continuously look at the data being generated by various laboratories they trend the data and say wait a minute there's something that looks anomalous here go back and do this right so we're very supportive of having a strong regulatory authority in these states making sure that they're staffed by chemists that truly understand the things that that we do and i think it will help us set some high level standards to get a greater level of consistency. The other piece that um, very, we very much um, are pushing for is the fact that we should be doing blinded samples. The only way you're really going to be able to see how labs are doing things is to give them material of an unknown potency and send it on to all the laboratories and have them all test it. To have such a program, though, you really need to have a central body to be able to manage that. And we're seeing in various states like Michigan, just recent, uh, they're they're building a lab. My understanding is Illinois now um, has location for a lab, and with the the new uh, head of compliance really looking to put a lot more teeth into that. We really encourage that. That will allow us to keep laboratories much more honest, and to be able to have the necessary oversight. That when a again when a patient comes in and gets that product, they can feel relatively comfortable. That you know the material they're taking is free of contaminants and is of is of the stated potency. Gotcha. And um, I did. I actually do have one one more question. I, I apologize. I told you that was my last question, but I also have a follow up to what you just said. How is testing done in other industries? Like, 
when I get a beer, it says how much percentage is on the beer. And then I use the example of Tylenol. And then I could even throw out cigarettes. I'm guessing it's all different for each industry, but it, I'm just- It is. It is. But I, and I should also mention, I was the head of quality at Johnson & Johnson doing Tylenol. So oh. I know all too well. So everything you said about Tylenol is absolutely true. But oh, cool. the, the difference in this industry is, and I'll go back to the pharmaceutical or, or the Tylenol example. There was an FDA, right? The Food and Drug Administration had a control, right? And at the end of the day, there was a group that was continuously monitoring, continuously had oversight and could do random audits and could do that. And they were very, very well staffed. So in the pharmaceutical, and I call the over-the-counter business like title, you had a governing body that set standards and enforced them. We don't have that in cannabis. What we do have is we have states and each state is doing it a little bit different. So as a result of that, the good news is we're definitely moving towards a, a FDA-like, I'll put it like, approach in that we're putting regulatory bodies in place that have scientific expertise that can set relevant standards. Up until the time that cannabis becomes an approved product, do you do you have like an FDA to be able to manage it on a you know on a nationwide basis? But right now, where we are is we're doing it on a state on a state by state basis, and and some states are are doing a much better job than others. One more follow up before my last question: Since sure. uh, alcohol and tobacco are not scheduled under the Controlled Substances Act, are they subject to those same FDA standards? There are standards. I don't believe uh, FDA monitors them. I know there. I I I don't know that answer. I know there All was good. conversations that FDA was having about controlling um, uh, cigarettes, but I believe that was only e-cigarettes. So I don't. I do not believe they have oversight bodies, but I don't honestly know what they are. Yeah, you get why I'm asking that though. It seems like in other industries, there's like a regulatory body that's just kind of there, and you have yep. to answer to them. But here, there is a regulatory body, but there are like these middlemen, these third-party, independent labs of which there are many to choose from. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm like curious, like how does it work in other industries? So, yeah, yep. gotcha. Um, so, last question, and I meant to ask it earlier. You had mentioned, uh, you know, possibly working. Uh, and I've heard the state mention this before, uh, that they would be working with the the AG to kind of do something about hemp. Um, was it the idea that you'd like be helping them with the, the hemp testing, as you said, since you do hemp testing or what's what's the idea there? Um, I, I, yeah, my, my understanding is they want to understand. And again, it's it's all the states are sort of it's on their agenda about how do we regulate this? And as part of regulation, I think one of the first things is. What's out there? And I think so where, where they're starting with is saying, okay, what what are they seeing out in the, the marketplace? And how do we, you know, based on those findings, how do we then put some level of tighter control um, with that? So um, from what I'm understanding, they do want to start doing some, I'll call it surveillance, sake of a better word, surveillance testing, where they go in and, and buy product just to see what it looks like much like what we did in Pennsylvania at the request of the Department of Health. It's a similar type of approach. It seems like Illinois, as our other states, are really starting to amp up this whole area just to see what's out there. And then I think with the premise being, once they find that, like, what are we going to do to control it, regulate it? Because that my, you know, my expectation is it's, it's going to be quite varied what we're going to find.
That's very, very interesting to hear. So um, that's kind of what I thought they were referring to. They had said, you know, that this is a, a big public safety issue and that they'd like to do something. Um, and I figured that that's I mean, what else would you do other than, you know, check in what's out there so that you can more authoritatively say, like, hey, this is a problem, you know, and yes, right. Yes. Yes. So. Well, it's been a wide-ranging conversation today, uh, Dr. Miller, and I'd love to have you back on the show sometime to talk about more. You know, I'm sure there's more that we could get into, and I'm sure there's more to discuss in the future. Uh, but before we go, uh, was there anything that we discussed today or anything that we didn't discuss today? I wanted to give you the space uh, for the last word. Yeah, no, I, I again, I think, you know, at, at you know, ACT Laboratories, we take our job very seriously. I take my job very seriously in that we're that last step to ensure product going to that marketplace is safe and effective. And, you know, we're very committed to um, working with regulators to develop a, a more robust program with the idea being that, you know, to ensure that that safety and efficacy of the products. Um, at, a, at an upcoming meeting, I'd love to talk to you about another program that we're working on right now is about how we can envision how we're going to raise the standards of all the laboratories around the U.S., would love to have you uh, have you talk a little bit about that. It's a, it's a concept called trust and testing, um, and would love to talk to you about it another time. Is that if we can't expect the product ever to be, you know, the the regulations ever be national? Is there a way that laboratories themselves can raise the standards, almost like a self policing approach to raise the standards and above what's out there? So, I'd love to come back and talk to you about what that program is and what we think the vision is moving forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there's your. Uh your spoiler for next episode folks. there you go so uh well cool dr miller i just want to say thanks again folks the link will be in the podcast description actlab.com if that makes it easier or just type it right into your url browser that's a pretty short url so actlab.com dr miller thank you once again thank you